Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 23rd, 2017, and my guest is Jennifer Polka. She has extensive experience in gaming, in technology generally, and she was Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Government Innovation for the U.S. Government's Office of Science and Technology Policy. She is also the founder of Code for America, which is our topic for today. Jennifer, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me. What is Code for America? Well, we are a national nonprofit, uh, a network of people who believe that government uh, is an important institution but needs to be updated to fit the 21st century. Uh, We think government services could work better, outcomes could be better, costs could be reduced, and that we can find new ways to serve those whose needs are the greatest. Um, And we really have to think in new ways and make government work differently to do that, but that if we can sort of all take responsibility and come together and do that, then it could be really the biggest source of societal good for a generation. Uh, It's very important, uh, I think, that government work in a 21st century way and meet the needs of our uh, our country today. Glad you're aiming low. Uh, It's very ambitious, (laughs) but when you first started, which was uh, how long ago? Uh, Well, let's see. We started in sort of 2010, and we started as a fellowship program where we got people from the primarily the consumer tech industry to come into government uh, in small teams and partner with cities. And the first time we ran that, which is sort of how we kicked off, was January of 2011. So we've been around about six years. So in the early days... As you say, it was a fellowship program, you, you sort of a Peace Corps, or uh, people have likened it to Teach for America, or you placed people into organizations, or in this case, government agencies, to try to make them more effective. How long was that the main model? Are you still doing that? And what, you, what is your, uh, what in addition does, does Code for America do now? We definitely still do the fellowship program. It's an important part of what we do uh, we don't just place them in uh, governments. Um, we really create these small teams that sort of mimic the skill set of a startup. Uh, and then we let them, uh, we, we place them with, with great innovators in government who want to try a different approach to solving problems, not just using technology, but using user-centered design and platform thinking. Um, and they they not just, make products that sort of solve a problem for the city or the agency. So it's mostly been cities and counties, um, some states leading up till now. We're working with the Department of Justice now in the state of California. So it's broadening out from, uh, from, uh, from just municipalities. Um, but what they're really doing is demonstrating how we could do this fundamentally differently. And then government people see that. Um, they generally are smart enough to know that there is a, a better way and that other ways are possible, but it gives them the models that they can follow so that it's not just our work um, that can have an impact, but the work that they will continue to do in these new models uh, across, uh, across all of these municipalities, all of these agencies on their own. Um, so we still very much do that, um, but 
some of the projects that came through these one-year sort of service year projects with these um, folks from consumer tech who wanted to sort of dip their toes into government for a year um, have shown a lot of promise. And we have realized that not just um, hoping that they will get adopted elsewhere through um, open source software, which is, which is our model, but actually spreading them from municipality to municipality can have a really huge impact. And so we have um, a number of programs that we are taking to scale uh, that operate in partnership, um, primarily with counties and states now that help the people in this country who have um, really, I think, in many cases, the worst experiences with government and those who need, are those who need to access government services like food assistance, um, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and particularly folks who uh, interact with the criminal justice system. So we do the fellowship. We also operate some of our um, projects at scale. Um, we also spend a, a fair amount of time just organizing um, this large and growing community of people who sort of believe in this idea and want to see it come to fruition wherever they are, whether it's um, Bloomington, Indiana, or uh, the Department of Justice in D.C. Um, there's just tons of people who just want to um, want to change how government works to make it work better for everybody. Give us an idea of the scope. So early on, how many fellows were out there, and now how many, uh, and, and how many employees are in the or- in the organization? Roughly, um, mm-hmm. how big is it? So we've got about a 50 full-time staff. Um, we, we have been doing the fellowship with somewhere between 12 and 25 fellows per year. Um, but what's really scaled us is not just um, taking these um, programs to many, many counties. We're in the pro- process right now of taking our food stamps projects to 58 California counties this year, or maybe 57, but um, close to that. Um, but the, the scale really comes from the amazing network of volunteers who do this in about 75 cities um, who aren't, uh, they're, they're just part of the community. They bring together the people from uh, Miami or Philadelphia or New York, or um, as I said, there's one starting in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, and just the people of that city will get together with the folks from City Hall and work on projects with them. And that combined with all those amazing people in City Halls and agencies and county welfare offices around the country um, are really the, the scale of the impact, not just through the fellowship. And is there a, a waiting list? Is there a demand to, uh, is there enough of a reputation? And have you had enough success that cities are eager to have help and there just isn't enough to go around or is there enough to go around? Yeah, there's a lot of demand for it. Um, what we have been struggling with is if we go work in a city or a county for a year and we create a piece of software, um, they don't always know how to maintain it or we don't always know how to maintain it for them. We can't create um, 30 software projects a year and, and run those for them. In many cases, we've been able to um, hand them off and the city's been able to run them or they've become their own startups. Uh, but increasingly local governments are looking for, they, they, they want to work with Code for America. They want to work with their local brigades, which is the name of the local community groups that do this. Um, they want to work with fellows. 
But as we've grown and the movement's grown, we're increasingly looking at ways that we can build things that are sustainable, not just demonstration projects. Demonstrations projects have a huge value in getting people uh, to change practices. Uh, but after six years of it, you can't have everything be a demonstration project. So enormous demand, and we're finding various ways to meet it through different programs and um, and in acting getting the community to act as the capacity so that it really can scale. So I like that. I like that word brigade. Um, it has mm -hmm. a, uh, it has an air of uh, military uh, success, vigor, and it's better than militia, which has other overtones. So I'm sure you, you thought about that carefully, <laughs> but brigade's very nice. Uh, let's, well, we think of it actually as the bucket brigade, yeah, well, you know? Yeah, cleanup crew kind of thing too. Uh, but it's got a lot. So of, everyone gets together and lends a hand. That's, yeah. that's really the more than the military. It's more the sort of everybody pitches in concept. Yeah, I like that. Um, let's give people an idea of what kind of, of projects we're talking about. So, in your uh, TED talk, which we'll link to, uh, which was back in 2012, you had a couple of very simple examples. Uh, you talked about a, adopting a fire hydrant. So, talk about that that if you'd like, or a related kind of app that. Uh, some of the fellows may have created and how it spread. Yeah, the fire hydrant app is so popular because uh, because I think of the TED Talk. And it remains popular, um, not necessarily just in the fire hydrant instance, um, which I'll explain, uh, but uh, it because it's an app that allows people literally to lend a hand in their city um, and physical infrastructure it's been adapted in a lot of ways. So the, the history of this one is that um, uh, there's been a lot of emergent outcomes. We had an amazing team of, uh, in our first year, uh, fellows who said, yes, I'll come do this. I'm going to leave my tech industry job and join a small team um, that's going to work, uh, in this case, with the city of Boston. And we had grand plans for what we would do. They all changed once, once our fellows got in there. Um, and one of the projects sort of became the, the model for future projects uh, in uh, which is not the, the, uh, the, um, the fire hydrant app. Uh, the, the first one that really became the model actually was this um, request by the mayor to deal with the fact that they had changed the um, rules about how kids were assigned to public schools. And they were still communicating these changes to parents through a 28-page printed brochure. Mm. <laughs> um, but what it really needed was a map because they were trying to get kids to walk to school. So they were assigning kids to schools within a mile and a half of their home. And um, they, uh, they, we had a couple of fellows go build this map where you could enter your address and the age of your kids and whether there were siblings in another public school and it would return a... Uh, map list of schools that you were able to attend. And we found out after we spent about 10 weeks getting this up and running, which sort of seems about right if you're a tech industry folk, you know, person, that if it had gone through a procurement process, it would have taken about two years and about $2 million to build. And that really set us off on, okay, this is, this is really what we're here to do. Um, but we had all these other projects um, because we took so much less time than, we, than they thought we would need. Uh, one of the other fellows um, saw, he was there during, um, this was the winter of 2011 in Boston when it snowed an enormous amount. It was, everyone called it snowpocalypse. Um, and one of the fellows asked uh, one of the folks in, in, in government, 
what happens to all these fire hydrants that are covered in seven or eight feet of snow if they need to uh, access them? And they said, well, we really just no longer have the resources to have municipal workers go dig them out. And he said, well, you know, why don't we just have the people who live in front of them adopt them and agree to dig them out when it's, when they're covered so that if there's a fire on their block, they don't lose 20 minutes uh, when the, when the fire trucks come. And he just made this map and let people say, yes, I will, I will adopt this hydrant and make sure it's accessible to firefighters. Um, and it was just a, a great example because everyone then looked at it and said, wait, I'm in Honolulu. And the thing I care about is obviously not snow and my fire hydrants, but I know that some of the tsunami sirens aren't working and the municipal workers aren't able to go check all of those. Um, but we'll allow people to adopt them and, and report when, when they're not doing their jobs. And it's, it's now, you know, a dozen different things in a different, dozen different cities. But I think a lot of people were really surprised that, A, this technology is so easy to do. Uh, this was like a day-long project. It's, you know, it's first instance of it. Um, and that people want to help. People actually are, are completely willing to do something as easy as saying, yes, I'll take care of this piece of physical infrastructure on my street. And there was a game. We learned a lot from that. There was a game aspect to it, which I thought was clever. Yeah, there's a lot of things that here start out as games, actually. Which was, uh, if you didn't do your job, someone could could adopt it from you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's a sort of, you know, there's social dynamics in everything that has to do with, uh, with the commons. Um, we, we have another app that came out of uh, a couple of years later, also a side project, not the thing that we went in to, to do, that started out as a game where you could play with the transit routes in your city. And uh, it ultimately became uh, a company that spun out because uh, that we found that in sort of small to medium-sized cities, it, that the transit planners were actually using it to do their jobs. And they changed some of the features and made it much more robust. And now it's uh, one of the hottest startups in San Francisco. And what, what does it do? Uh, it, uh, it allows transit planners um, to look at the effects of changing routes in their cities um, very, very quickly. Um, something that was a several day process to sort of model out what would happen if you changed a transit route now takes 10 seconds. And looking at the impact of that change on what? Traffic? Uh, well, in a number of things. Timeliness? When it was just a game. Yeah, so when it was just a game, it was things like you could see on the side, um, okay, so you as a citizen want the Mission 14 bus, which runs right across in front of our office here, um, to go a little bit further. Um, and so you change that and it would tell you the, the, the cost impact primarily. So you could say, I want the Mission 14 to come every five minutes mm -hmm. instead of every 15 minutes. And I want it to go all the way to Spear Street because I go to Google a lot or something. And it would add up on the size how much cost you're uh, adding to the system. Hmm. Um, now, of course, it's much more robust and it's things like Title VI compliance. Um, you can do much, much more quickly uh, in the, in the re it's called Remix now, it's a company, in the Remix app, whereas it would have taken, you know, uh, prior it was weeks and weeks of, you know, um, people's modeling out of, um, of, of any changes to a route to show that it was, it was compliant with Title VI and now you can sort of push a button and do it. Or What's you can Title drag it around and see it. What's Title VI? Um, Title VI has to do with... Um, uh, equitable access in transit. And beyond that, I would be out of my depth. Okay. 
uh, but it's looking presumably at some characteristics of various neighborhoods and where it goes. Exactly. And, okay. Uh, so this on the surface sounds like um, a wonderful thing, and, and part of it certainly is. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the people who, within the public school system, will start a, a collection of money to do X, Y, or Z because the school doesn't have enough money. And, of course, one of the challenges here, I suspect you've thought about this, is the incentives it gives, both good and bad, to uh, governments to solve the problem on their own. Uh, mm-hmm. So have you observed that that dynamic, and, and what do you think of it? Well, I mean, I think that um, I would agree that the point of all of this demonstration is to make government better. And that doesn't mean letting them off the hook, but it does mean demonstrating ways in which we can be creative and uh, sort of 21st century in our thinking. So, you know, when we talk about, um, we talk about sort of two sides of our mission that are inextricably linked. In fact, on our wall here, we have written in huge letters, government can work for the people, by the people in the 21st century, if we all help. Now, the for the people part is just, you know, the main way that we express that is just better services for citizens that are particularly digital services, just because that's how um, people interact with institutions today, primarily is through uh, digital means. But the by the people part of it, um, I think that the uh, the tsunami siren apps and the, um, the uh, hydrant apps are really just one manifestation of that. Um, there's a much broader agenda there that I think doesn't necessarily have to do with the notion that we're all going to shovel out, uh, shovel out fire hydrants, but that the ways in which we work, the ways in which we um, insist on interacting with uh, other institutions in our lives can be applied to government, but we have to make that happen. So having local community groups, for instance, come together like our brigades and work with government isn't necessarily about letting them off the hook. It's certainly true that if you go into any city hall today, pretty much, um, and say, you guys should be doing things this way or you should be doing things that way, it wouldn't be that hard for you to make an app to make this so much easier for people in your city. Um, They will tell you two things. They will say, we can't do it that way. Now, many people are, are changing that, but sort of the conventionalism is we're not allowed to do it that way. We're not allowed to build things quickly based on user needs. Um, we have to go through lengthy procurement processes that mean that, you know, it's going to be three years before you'd ever see anything and it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and they'll also say, we just don't have the resources. And so when we talk about by the people, it, it means a lot of different things. It means the people showing up and saying there are different ways of doing this. We can help you, not just hold you accountable. Um, And sometimes when a local community group makes an app for a city, it's not that it's replacing uh, the system that, you know, the procurement system. It's not replacing what the city should have done. It's probably something the city in practicality wouldn't have gotten to do. It's not like we took money away from a contractor because they were never going to contract for this. They simply don't have the funds. But it's helping government sort of flex those muscles of seeing the other ways that things can get done and then finding their own path to doing it in a, in a much lighter weight uh, way that looks a lot more like what a, what a startup would do. So it's really just mixing it up and stop thinking about government over here and people over here, but how, 
together we can come up with some new models. I guess I love that. I mean, I think it's a great idea, and it's some of the examples are really you know inspiring and or just kind of cool. I guess the worry I have is that government doesn't seem to respond very well to these kind of innovations in the following sense. Uh, at least they take them. That's good. They don't just say, oh, that's, we don't do that. They, they will say, we can't do it ourselves, but we're glad to use yours. So that's, I think that's a good thing. What worries me is that they don't then say, well, now that we're doing it this way, we don't have to do all this other stuff. And we could say, give some of your money back. There's no pressure or there's not much pressure. There's a little bit of pressure, but there's not much pressure on government to, say, restrain itself in its, say, mission creep. So there, there are things that government does well, and there's things that it does poorly. The things that it does poorly, you're maybe making them do, helping them do them better. I worry they're just going to then do some other things poorly because they don't seem to then say, well, I guess we don't need as big a staff because this is taken care of. We were stretched thin, but now we have this great efficiency, unlike, say, in the private sector where innovations like this tend to lead to lower prices or, uh, you know, all kinds of different responses. I worry government doesn't respond very well to these kind of innovations in that dimension. Do you notice that? Do you think that's an issue? Well, I think we're pretty early in this whole agenda, and there hasn't been probably, um, you know, examples of this working at scale enough to be talking about, you know, returning dollars, whether to taxpayers or to other uh, areas of government. Um, but I, I think we're headed there. Um, I think that there's different ways to think about this. Um, to me, I think this notion of sort of big government or small government is less powerful than government that does what we intend it to do. Um, and I think we have so far to go before we're showing those examples so clearly that we, we will get to that conversation and different people will have different views on it, but I think we all want it to go there. Um, <clears throat> whatever your, um, your views on government, you don't want your taxpayers, that your tax dollars to the extent that you pay them uh, not getting the effect that you intend. So personally for me, uh, I'll give you an example. We work in a lot right now in food assistance. Um, you may, you know, you may think food assistance is a great idea or it's a bad idea. I'll tell you it's a, it's a, it's a, um, SNAP, which is a $70 billion program across our country is a program most highly correlated with better health and education outcomes for kids. Um, I think it's actually a program that you could argue saves a bunch of money because uh, if you've got a kid who's got, you know, breakfast in their stomach when they head to school, they're less likely to act out. They're, you know, you're less likely to end up putting that kid in, in special ed. Um, they're going to perform better. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why I tend to think getting people food is, um, uh, you know, getting especially kids food uh, when otherwise they're going to go hungry is, is, is a good way to um, help everybody and keep our society running. Um, they're in California, um, which everyone will, would think because it has a reputation as being a, a, a very blue state. In fact, there's many, many red counties. Um, we have the second lowest rate of participation in SNAP. Um, the only state with lower participation by eligible people is Wyoming. Um, now a lot of people can't get on the program. We can talk about why that's essentially what we kind of do here at Code for America is, uh, is sort of make it work as intended so people can get on. 
Um, but the point is, we know a lot about the cost of administering the program. There's billions and billions of dollars that we're spending in IT uh, and human beings uh, to administer this. A lot of it, if you really look at it from the perspective of, of the user and the perspective of the eligibility workers and the county welfare directors and the social workers, there is, it is so much more complicated and time-consuming and technology-heavy than it needs to be. So if you take the couple of billion dollars that we're spending probably in California alone on uh, expensive IT systems, many, many different phone calls, tons and tons of paperwork, and just put that into giving people food, that would be a better use of taxpayer dollars from my view. Um, and I care about that just as much as someone who thinks food stamps is, is, you know, is a bad idea. We're both looking at how do we make these systems just be much more efficient and do what the taxpayers said they should do. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, I think, um, you know, there are certain things the government does that certain segments of the population are never going to encounter. I've, I've been fortunate. I've never been on food stamps, never been eligible for food stamps. At least I don't think so. I may have been when I was a student, but um, I've never gotten food stamps. I've never had to deal with that bureaucracy. I've never been in jail. Um, I've never been arrested. I've never been on parole uh, or probation. So that government bureaucracy that deals with that strikes me as really unpleasant and not particularly well run. So things that would make that work more effectively and humanely would seem to me to be a really great idea. Maybe we'll talk about that later if we have a chance. Um, There are parts of government that most of us encounter, though, like the Department of Motor Vehicles, that have become Mm -hmm. sort of – you know, a, a late night TV joke. It's not even a late night TV joke anymore. It's not funny because it's been told so many yeah. times. So, uh, or the post office. Now, in my experience, they've both gotten a lot better over the last 25 years in the states that I've happened to encounter them. Uh, and I, I view that as, uh, uh, I don't know if this is true, it's just a speculation, that the improved customer service that we get from the for-profit sector has put some pressure. People have certain expectations of when their phone call is going to be answered and what's going to happen when they encounter a person at a desk because we deal with bureaucracy in the private sector too, and it has many of the problems that the public sector has, but it seems to run on average better. So we have those expectations, and I think the the public sector has responded. Just to take a simple example, I can re-register my car online now and not have to make the Mm -hmm. trip to the dreaded DMV, at least sometimes. That's great. Uh, But when I do go there, say, to get my son his driver's license, it's a pretty unpleasant experience, uh, which includes getting in the wrong line, you know, things that would seem to me to be fairly easy to fix. It's almost um, an apparent conspiracy to make sure you've left something at home, that it's it's not transparent what you need when you show up. I've had that issue for passport renewal for my kids lately. So those kind of issues that seem to be very amenable to some kind of process improvement, maybe technology, maybe not. I don't know. And I'm wondering if you guys have thought about those sort of big interfaces where people uh, are encountering government across the the citizenship. Well, I think you make a really good point that is um, really core to our work, which is it isn't really technology, it's design. You said process redesign. Correct. Um, And that's absolutely true. Um, There's tons of technology in government. Um, It's just that, 
it, so our, the language we use is it's built for government needs, not for user needs. Um, and that for, we, we've learned over the years that, um, you can make a better website, but exactly as you describe, if the things that happen after you, you know, enter your information on the website involve you taking further steps that um, interacting with a system that is still obscure, <laughs> you know, um, hard to understand, you don't know what you're supposed to bring, um, then too many, too many click throughs that would never it, happen in a other most other private sites. Well, I'll give you an example in food stamps because it's very parallel to what you just described, um, not knowing what to bring, et cetera. When you apply for food stamps um, now through our, our, our program, so um, it takes about 45 minutes through, uh, online through the, the way that California has been doing it, and it doesn't work on mobile, so most of the people who would be need, you know, need it wouldn't have access. They just, you know, most low-income people actually don't have access to broadband internet at home, so they're going to a library, um, they would try to do the food stamps application online at the library, but the library computers time out after 30 minutes and the application takes about 45 to 50 minutes and it won't let you save your work. So, you know, there's all these sort of barriers in it that, that uh. just don't take into account how people actually use it. But further, um, so we have a, an application that takes about seven minutes on a mobile phone, very simple, very clear, written in a way that, you know, doesn't confuse people. Um, but, but, and then you're, and then you're in the system, you know, going through the rest of the eligibility steps. And then it starts to look again, um, a bit like what you described. So we would find, we would text message the people who'd applied through our, um, uh, through our app and say, you know, you were supposed to have gotten an interview by phone. You know, did they call you? And we started documenting what people told us. And it was things like, well, I got the letter telling me when my interview was, but it came after the date of the interview, or I got a letter and it was in the wrong language, um, or um, I got this fraud prevention form and uh, I didn't know how to fill it out, so I, you know, just stopped the process. And you know, in in these cases, um, so data turns out to be really, really important um, in terms of having a conversation with people who administer these programs. And for example, on that fraud prevention form, our staff called the county that was sending that form out and said, I don't think this form that you're sending is required by any law, policy, or regulation. I just, you know, would like to know why you're sending it to your clients. And the, um, the county welfare director said, we don't send that out. Hmm. And she called us two weeks later and she said, I just really want to thank you for letting me know that that was going out to our clients. Um, I didn't know that. And I've gone and talked to the eligibility workers and they stopped it. And then you see uh, a lower burden on the people. You see the people in that county actually making it through that step, more people making it all the way to the end. And I will stress that that response of thank you for letting me know is actually the most common response that we get from government officials by far. I'm not saying we don't have people who, um, don't want things to change, are afraid of sort of the way that we do stuff that happens. But when we are engaged in a very specific thing <laughs> um, and are able to provide data and do it in a courteous way, almost all of the time they say, actually, we want this process to work too. We didn't have that visibility because we, didn't, we don't have the ability in government to create 
uh, IT systems that are instrumented to know or, and, and larger processes around these IT systems that are instrumented to tell us what works and what doesn't. And so when somebody helps us and tells us that, we're very eager to fix it. And that's one of the reasons I, you know, I really think people misunderstand largely um, the attitude of, of people in government. Um, there are certainly the experiences that you mentioned that I have had, of course, myself at a DMV or a passport office where somebody doesn't seem like they're really trying to help me. Yeah, but I've also all. had so many experiences of sort of leaders in government, um, people who run these programs who are just so eager for a different way of doing things because they went into public service to serve the public and they just want more tools to do it. And they know that um, data about their users' experience is a great tool. Well, just to bring in Adam Smith for a minute, which I didn't think I'd be able to do, but I'm sure my listeners will be <laughs> happy to hear uh, Adam Smith's name invoked. I'm going to bring in a different part than I usually bring in for those who are tired of Adam Smith. But uh, in a, in a, in a for profit business, uh, the owner certainly wants uh, to figure out what would make the customer happy. Uh, they may not be good at it. There are plenty of uh, private sector software apps that are designed for the team and not for the user. We know that there are problems, but then they get these yeah. signals from the market and then they respond or they go out of business if they don't. And even an owner who's passionate about customer service and desperately wants to figure out what customers want and help them uh, can have employees who don't care. But there's mm -hmm. a sort of set of feedback loops that the better you are at empathizing with your customer and figuring out what would make them happy, the more likely it is that your business will thrive and you'll keep your job and so on and so on. And with the government, those feedback loops tend to be less robust. And so I, part of what I see you doing, if I want to frame it as, as uh, positively as I can, it's, is that you're sort of you're standing in. And providing the feedback and the, I would say, even the incentive for change that might not otherwise be there when a single customer complains. And in some sense, a single citizen, in some sense, your, um, your profile and the fact that you're, you've got a website and you can tell stories and all kinds of things, can, you can go to the media, you have a lot more power. Uh, and and certainly your brigades, I think, have a lot more power than than the average citizen in responding. And I'm curious, you can respond to any of that if you want, but I'm also curious if you've gotten some criticism for people who see you as sort of a unaccountable, non governmental piece of the puzzle. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that. I will say um, that I think you're absolutely right in your diagnosis. What, what we're doing often is just making those feedback loops, you know, uh, that we're making things visible that otherwise aren't visible. And very often just um, when, we make, when we can make problems that people have visible, we see very often a desire to fix them. And then we see people saying, but within the constraints of government, um, I don't have the same options to fix them that you guys do. And our answer to that has been, yeah, that has been true, but it's not, it's true in practice, not in, uh, it's not actually true in law. Um, it's habit, and it's we, habit, right? Well, yes, exactly. Habit is, is, a, is another word for it. We would say, you know, 
there's, of course, we're never asking anybody to do something that is against the law. You take law and regulation is on top of them, you know, policies and all these things. And, and, and basically the way people have practiced a lot of um, uh, the, the, the regulation around how, particularly around how government buys and builds technology, which is, you know, a lot about procurement regulation. Um, you can go back in there and say, no, actually doing it the way that's right for users is actually totally legal. And people often don't believe that until they go see other projects that are running in that way, ask a bunch of questions and then see that, oh, actually this is, this is completely justified. It's, it's the conventional wisdom that needs to be challenged that there's something wrong with this. Um, the other thing that strikes me is important that you contribute or can contribute, and I'm sure you've done some of this and would probably want to do more, is, is, is benchmarking. So if I'm a city government with a problem like fire hydrants or whatever it is, there, there is a temptation to sort of say, well, that's a really hard problem. We don't know how to solve it. I guess that's too bad. And outside, in the outside world, people would say, let's see if anybody else has solved this. And I think one of the things that you're, it appears that you're doing, and, and t- you can tell me about it, is sort of a clearinghouse for innovation for municipal and county government potentially to make um, not transparency not just for users trying to use services more effectively and the problems that are cropping up to become better known, but for municipalities, cities, and counties to have a better idea of what could be done to solve a particular problem and to let that spread the way it would normally in a in a competitive market and it doesn't always happen in a public sector setting is that is that right yeah absolutely though i'll say that in terms of things like um performance management with data we're a player in that space but um but but i would have to give a shout out to folks like uh what work cities which is funded by uh, bloomberg philanthropies um that is just doing that in a, in a very um, disciplined and rigorous way across the country. Uh, so we're more helping folks build the capacity uh, to, and use the word empathy before, and I, I want to I lift that up, um, to build services for users with empathy uh, and feedback loops. Um, uh, the sort of way that's most expressed is through the creation of something uh, uh, like a, a municipal version of the United States Digital Service, which um, I had a hand in helping create at the federal level, um, where you get people in who know how to do this well, uh, whether they're building it themselves or working with contractors, which is which is most common. Uh, but the folks at What Works are just doing an amazing job of helping people create programs to um, use data to make better decisions across you know hundreds and hundreds of. Um, of cities in America, and uh, they, they just deserve a lot of credit for that work. Well, we had Paul Bloom uh, as a guest a few episodes back talking about his book, Against Empathy. And oh, I, picked, yeah. I picked up that book with uh, quite a bit of skepticism, and I found it extremely thought-provoking and mostly persuasive. And when I talked to him, uh, I even got more persuaded. Part of it's just uh, the challenge of being a host of a podcast. There's a tendency to... Uh, if the guest is polite and kind, as you are, for example, and as Paul was, to, to sort of root for them and, and find yourself maybe a little more sympathetic than you might otherwise be, and sometimes not. But anyway, <laughs> after after I finished that interview with Paul, and um, I, time passed, and and it's it's such an interesting book that you still 
I still think about it. One of the things I thought about on the other side in favor of empathy that didn't come up in that conversation is the importance of empathy in, in being successful in business or in government service, which is it's really useful to be able to put yourself in the shoes of another person if you're trying to figure out how to make them happy and what they might want in a product or in a, a service. And so the example you just gave, and, and when you said you wanted to lift up empathy, I'm thinking, well, some of our listeners might say, no, empathy's bad. No, it's really, there are many places very good. And this is one of them. So I just want to make that uh, point because I, I regret not having thought of it at the time when I interviewed Paul. And it's certainly relevant here that when government, uh, I think one of the challenges of, of government is that the feedback loops for empathy with their customers, their clients are not always there. And it's important to have them. Yeah, absolutely. I heard that interview. It was fantastic, by the way. And, uh, um, you know, one of the things uh, that that we help folks understand is that, um, for instance, you could say, uh, um, I've got empathy for my users and I know they want this feature. And so we're going to add this feature. <laughs> now, you do that a thousand times and yeah. you get software with a thousand features that no one uses. Yeah. Or so three people want is- three people want any <laughs> one of them and nobody wants all of them. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're uh, our process is very much grounded in empathy, but um, with the skills of design to translate user needs into great software that works for everybody, and generally for it to work for everybody, it actually needs to have fewer features, yeah. less complexity, sure. not more, and and that's that's something I think government has not um, done well. Uh, until recently, until we've been, until more people with design skills have been have been using those skills within the government context. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And I, you know, people um, often accuse me of being anti-government. Uh, I'm not. I'm very much not an anarchist. For example, I'm a what I like to call a classical liberal, meaning I want limited or smaller government than what we have now. But I do think one way to think about that is that I feel like government. It has too many features it across a much different scope of activities than than what you're referring to, say, in a particular app. But the government tries to do too many things and ends up doing most of them either poorly or in a mediocre way when uh, if they concentrate on their core activities and did them well, uh, I think we'd have a much better citizenship and a happier, uh, happier country. I want to take – related to that, I want to take a quote that you gave I thought was phenomenal – uh, in your TED Talk uh, from Tim O'Reilly, former Econ Talk guest, uh, you, you quoted him as saying, government is what we do together that we can't do alone. And a lot of times listeners ask me, well, what's my philosophy of government? That, that's pretty much my philosophy of government. Where, where I usually differ with people is what we can do alone, at least when I, when I say alone, I mean voluntarily. Uh, without without mm-hmm. coercion, without without taxation, and my challenge uh, to what you're working on and to what people who are more who want bigger government than I want is, you know, there, there are just so many things that government does. To that's that's what government should do. Government should do the things that we can't do on our own voluntarily. And unfortunately, I feel it it does a lot of things that we could do on our own and do them better. And then it does other things that we, we it's true we can't do them on our own, but those aren't they aren't good things like invading countries that, that shouldn't be invaded. Uh, it's true we can't do that on our own, but that's something we shouldn't want to do together. Um, so mm-hmm. how do you think about that? I mean, I, 
I have to believe, well, I know from, from your talk and what I've read, and read of what you guys do, there must be some things you come across you think, well, like, this is just a, this is going to solve. It just isn't going to be, it doesn't need to be a government activity anymore. It's just a way to solve this through the Internet, say, or, or an app. Well, well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, sorry. I will, I'll start. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Uh, it's great. I, I, I'm, I'm going to ramble. I'll, I'll start by saying uh, I guess I have a lot in common with you. Um, my only act of civil disobedience in the past 15 years was uh, getting arrested when the Iraq war started. <laughs> and I was eight and a half months pregnant with my daughter at the time. So that, that was, <laughs> I, I guess I agree with you on that. I, I think I would also very much agree with you about questioning what government should do and shouldn't do, though I obviously um, think things like food stamps are a great thing that government should do. I think the question isn't what they, whether they should do it or not, but what is the thing there that they should do that is really valuable. And um, uh, you had Tim O'Reilly on. I, I should uh, disclose he is now my husband and been very uh, influenced by his thinking um, on this, especially the sort of concept of government as a platform. Um, but I'll give you a, uh, just one example of it from uh, work that d derived from the stuff I did at the White House um, back in 2013, 2014. Um, this is a project that the United States Digital Service did. And I, and I, I don't know if your listeners know what the USDS is. I don't. I don't know. Uh, so uh, the USDS is, is a group of amazing, talented tech and design people, uh, a couple hundred of them actually, um, that work in the White House. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a unit of the Office of Management and Budget um, that works on the digital things that are most important to, uh, to our federal government, particularly presidential priorities. So I worked there under Obama, where the first presidential priority having to do digital was an emergency around healthcare.gov. Um, the team that came to, uh, to get that website back on track um, uh, was sort of the seed team for the USDS, um, which I had gone there to sort of help to, to get started. And my inspiration really was the government digital service in the UK, uh, which has done a fantastic job of this. It's taken some hits most recently with the changing government there. But um, they also had in their principles over at the GDS, these great digital folks doing work, that you should really consider um, what you're doing. And one of their principles was do less. And this is in a, in a digital context, but it, an example of it is, do you need to build a whole website or can you get the data out there, you know, uh, with great APIs on them in such, in such way um, that other people can build the interfaces to that data that um, uh, will um, frankly result in, in, in a number of different offerings um, accessing the same data for different kinds of users and often um, you know, great interfaces built by uh, the kinds of people who know how to do this really well. So one example would be the, the college scorecard that uh, um, the Domestic Policy Council initiated um, soon after I left. Um, they did actually build a great website to help students understand or prospective students understand the kinds of things they should consider when, when looking at colleges. But most importantly, um, they got that data out there in ways that people could use it. So, for instance, it's now the data that Google accesses when it, when it tries to respond to a, a query from somebody saying, I'm trying to figure out if this, this college is the right place where it's actually pulling data that the federal government has, has put out there. And that's, a, that's really, really powerful. Yeah, I, I mean, I think about, I'm going to go back to your first comment about 
what you said about food stamps. Um, food stamps, it's appalling to me that, and it's just one of many programs that, as you point out, a lot of people are eligible for, but either don't know how to apply, can't apply, find it hard to apply. And so I don't, I, I certainly agree that we should do those better. Just like, I mean, there are, there are people who don't think we should have driver's licenses. I'm not, it's not one of my issues. I'm okay with driver's licenses. But if we're going to have them, let's, let's have the process mm-hmm. run as effectively and painlessly and as thoughtfully as possible. I, the, the interesting question for me is the challenge that we have of that habit, the way we talked about earlier, we were talking about how bureaucracies just sort of say, well, we've always done it this way. Or, I, can't, you know, I can't imagine doing it better or differently or, gee, that's weird. Uh, but there's so many things I wonder that, that if the government does now that maybe could be done privately with the help of technology and get outcomes that might be more effective for the people we're trying to help. So this isn't about the way a lot of people often, I think, frame it as, you know, I don't want to help people or government needs to be smaller, period, or my taxes are too big. I'm just asking the question, can we help hungry people? Can we help children get educated more effectively in a decentralized way rather than the way we do it now? And I'm just thinking, case of food stamps, um, about food banks, and uh, we had an episode on that a while back about how you know they improved the, the algorithm they used for for collecting food and assigning it and what they offered. And you know, food banks are kind of competitors for food stamps. I don't know what food bank directors think of as their job. You know, I, part of what I see their job is is to help people who don't know how to get into the food stamp system for sure. But could there could they be bigger and could they be effective if technology was was used in a creative way. And I think the biggest challenge for government is they just never are going to think about that. They're never, it's really hard for them to sort of, uh, you know, blue sky kind of thinking. It just doesn't come naturally. Well, I, w- I would agree. It's really challenging for them to think in that way, or more importantly, really challenging for them to do things differently because they operate under a lot of constraints. I think I would not agree that, um, that they don't want to think in that way, um, that they're not, uh, I think that government isn't full of people. I'm not saying the majority, but certainly tons of great innovators in the government trying to think about things totally differently. Yeah, not just like how much money is going to go to this program versus this program, but is this goal being met yep. <laughs> through these programs? And if not, what's a better way to do it given that it's, you know, it's 2017, right? Like right. things work a little bit differently. I mean, on the issue of food assistance, so so a lot of people look at things like food assistance and say, well, you know, um, we're going to need to solve hunger through charity. And I think that's great. Um, people should give money to their food banks. By the way, food banks partner with SNAP, uh, food, you know, national food assistance. Yep. A lot of the people who go to a food bank also, you know, will get a, a, a worker come over and say, can I help you apply for SNAP? In fact, those eligibility workers in California now increasingly use get CalFresh, which is the thing that we have built. But, um, you know, the total, I, I think these numbers are about correct. So about $42 billion a year is spent through charity on sort of essentially safety net issues. And um, whether you like this or not, this is true. $470 billion or more is spent on taxpayer dollars. Yeah, I think that's... So I, I think that's exactly right. And by the the that episode I was talking about is Canis Prendergast. Uh, we'll put a link up to it uh, where we talked about food banks getting more effective. But th- that's true, right? 
it dwarfs – the public spending dwarfs the private spending. If the public spending went away, the private spending would grow. It would probably not grow to $470 billion, though for a whole bunch of reasons. And I guess the question then would be would it serve its clients differently, better? In this case, maybe not. I mean I don't think – you know, food stamps is not something I get really worked up over. It's not. I would like to see a private alternative to me, but it's not like, say, education. Where with education, I think the government spends too much and does badly in, in especially in poor neighborhoods. Uh, so, so it. I yeah. don't want to get. I don't want to. We don't have to belabor the food stamp point. I think the you know just the general point I'm making is that, and I didn't mean. By the way, I didn't mean to say that they don't care. I think they do care. I just don't think it comes naturally them to innovate in the way that that you might be able to or your organization might help them and i think uh well, go yeah ahead. no go ahead well well let me make, let me make two points there. i mean um i mean the reality right now is that we're spending that money and we ought to be spending it better and i and i think that i think we can right and i think a lot of people have lost faith that government services could be as easy to use uh as as cost effective to build, you know, as, as the private sector. And I believe it can, um, because it's moving in that direction. It's just not, you know, love it to move faster. Um, but I think, you know, the, one of the reasons you and others say, I don't want that to come through government. I want it to come to Ms. Lancy is because it looks ineffective. And if, if, if it was so effective to do it through government, would you have that view? I mean, you know, if it were, yeah. So, that, sure. so that's the thing. And then I, I would say, I would challenge two assumptions. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I think we have a lot of common ground here, but I would challenge two assumptions. And one is just is simply most people will say that government will never do um, technology, design, service, um, uh, innovative thinking, uh, you know, re- redesign of services, um, or even, as you said, like the fundamental questioning of how we should del- get to these outcomes as well as the private sector. And I, I think that you could look around right now and say some, as some evidence, some of the best people in the consumer tech world right now are working for government and doing this. And we just need to, I, I would love more people to look at those folks and look at the quality of the work that they're putting out. And the second thing I would say is, if you think about why these constraints in government make it so hard uh, for and have made it so hard for government to do digital well, to do innovation well, it's primarily because taxpayers don't trust government and have created the, you know, these very complex procurement regulations, um, all of these things that are basically the manifestation of taxpayers saying, I don't trust you. So let's put a whole lot of rules in place so that you can, you, we can, you know, uh, we can really, really regulate how the government is going to spend my money, which results, ironically, <laughs> in it being spent often not that well. But the taxpayer has to own some, the taxpayer, the American people has to own some responsibility for the fact that if we don't, if, you know, if you, if you don't trust that institution, uh, you're, and you build a whole lot of rules in, you're not actually going to get the outcome that you want. Well, the other thing you're doing, which is, I think, relevant to that point, and it's a point I, you know, I am sympathetic to, is you had the potential, and certainly you talked the game, which is good, of making government service honorable rather than shameful. 
And for whatever reason, there are countries where government service is considered um, honorable. And in America, it's less so, I would say. There are obviously exceptions. There are plenty of things people who work in government do with pride. and, and But there are there is a little bit of a stigma, I think, uh, culturally in America about bureaucracy, for sure, and to some extent government in general. And it would be a better world if if people who were drawn to government were proud of it. You wouldn't have to pay them as much for starters because they'd get some of their rewards in non-monetary ways. And you could rely on their motivation, not just through the monetary incentives and oversight, but through their desire to do a good job. So, you know, when someone who staffs a health clinic, uh, say for poor people, we don't say, oh, look at that. Isn't that horrible? Why are they doing that? We say, they're great. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody who teaches uh, in a in a public or private school who does who's motivated and who cares deeply, we, we honor. The problem is we, we've developed a world, either correctly or not, people would disagree, but developed a world where a lot of those jobs are not so honored, and it doesn't attract the people who would want to do them honorably. So it would be a better world if, if, uh, if that changed. And I, I do think, again, that if government did what it was supposed to do and less of what it's become – expanded its role, I think it would that would help us get there too. So I think there's sort of two ways I'd like to see us get there, your way and maybe a little bit of my way. Yeah, I, I, I fundamentally agree with that. I mean, I have, um, I completely understand why it is not always seen as honorable. I think fundamentally it's honorable if you go in wanting to serve the public. Um, I think part of what's hit the reputation of public servants is that they simply don't have the tools to do it. So I'll tell you, this, this one of the most profound moments for me in this journey was um, we worked in 2012 in Detroit. And we did a couple of great projects there. I won't go into an in interest of time, but the as, as often happens, the projects were successful, but the impact on the civil servants there was, was more profound. And this woman who had... Um, really honestly just been told that she had to work with us and had been skeptical. Um, a senior leader in, in Detroit city government came up to me at the uh, Coach America Summit, which is the big, actually at the time it was pretty small, but the event that we do uh, at the end of each year to, to sort of celebrate people who are doing this kind of innovative work in government and, and, and show some of our own projects. And she said to me, um, you know, I went into public service to serve the public and I've been doing it for 28 years and I have just realized that many years ago I stopped believing I could serve the public. And what your project did for me was make me believe that again. I now have the tools to actually do what I'm meant to do here. And when you see people kind of light up with that passion again for public service, I think I think we can absolutely make this profession the most honorable profession in the country. My guest today has been Jennifer Polka. Jennifer, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.